Today, we're not going to cover one idea. We're going to do instead several observations on the parsha. I hope you find them interesting and intriguing. And a bit of advice, I would urge you to stick around for the A&Q at the end of the episode, because in my opinion, it is a dandy. So our parsha is wrapping up the saga of Joseph. We could call it maybe part three of the trilogy. Joseph was 17, and he was reviled by his brothers, and they want to kill him. They settle for selling him as a slave. Joseph descends to Egypt. He spends the large part of 13 years incarcerated. Overnight, he is transformed into being the viceroy, the second in command of Egypt. He masterfully runs the seven years of plenty, made sure that there is a plan for stockpiling all the food that the world needs over the course of seven years. And now it's been two years into the seven or the expected seven years of famine. And Joseph is 39 years old. He hasn't seen his father in 22 years since he was a young lad of 17. And now his brothers are coming to procure food and he is toying with them. But we know he's really testing them to see if they've repented from their ways, if they have warm feelings towards their brother Benjamin. And everything comes to a crescendo and Joseph makes the big reveal, I'm your brother, and he coaches his family to come join him in Egypt. Now, the Torah tells us how Jacob was really nervous about going up to Egypt. Well, first, he didn't believe his sons. He didn't believe that Joseph was alive. And finally, he accepted that, I'm going to go to Egypt. I want to see him before I pass. But I'm worried, leaving Canaan, leaving the promised land, and traveling with a huge retinue of the whole family. Seventy souls descended down to Egypt. And we know this is going to be the beginning of a multi-century sojourn in the land of Egypt that's going to culminate, of course, as we will read in the book of Exodus, with the Exodus and the founding, essentially, of our nation. This is a family. It's a big family, 70 souls, but it's going to become a nation. And God promises Jacob, I will descend with you. I will ascend with you as well. No need to worry. Now, the first point that I want to ponder, the first observation I want to share is related to the 70 souls. The Torah tells us that Jacob descended with 70 souls. And Rashi tells us, wait a minute, if you count how many people, the final tally is only 69. Yet the Torah calculates that there are 70. So Rashi tells us, quoting from our sages, that Yocheved, the daughter of Levi, and the mother, soon to be mother of Moses and Aaron and Miriam, she was born between the walls, like right up at the entrance, by the customs, if you will, of Egypt, Yocheved was born. And we mentioned in the big podcast, the rebroadcast, that what this means is, is that the Jewish people now are descending to Egypt. This is going to be a very long, arduous, painful experience for the Jewish people. The redemption is going to happen via Moses, of course. And therefore, it has to be that the solution is in place before the problem gets started. 
So before the Jewish people enter, right by the doorstep, so to speak, of Egypt, the mother of the Savior, so to speak, has to be born. The healing, the remedy, must precede the malady. Now the Ramban, he compares Yocheved to Sarah. He asks a question, wait a minute. The Jewish people spent 210 years in Egypt. Moses is 80 years old at the Exodus. If Yocheved is born right at the entrance to Egypt, that makes Yocheved 130 years old when Moses was born. So the Rabbanah the question, wait a minute. The Torah makes a huge big deal about Sarah giving birth at the age of 90. Yocheved gave birth at the age of 130, 40 years more, 40 years older, more senior than Sarah. So he asks the question, why don't we highlight the miracle, shall we say, of Yochavah giving birth at such an advanced age, like we do with Sarah. But I find it really interesting that Yochavah and Sarah being compared when we know that Sarah also had a very transformative, shall we say, experience at the customs, at the border of Egypt. All the way back at the beginning of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah travel to Canaan, and right when they arrive in Canaan, there's a famine. And where do they go? They go to Egypt. And in Egypt, Sarah is abducted and taken to Pharaoh's home. And that's when Abraham has to say, well, she's my sister, she's not my wife, don't kill me. Rashi tells us, all the way back in Parshas Lechelcha, Rashi tells us that Abraham actually put Sarah into a suitcase. You know, as a kid, they used to always say, oh, I want to fly with you. I'll just go in your suitcase, right? Sarah was in a suitcase because Abram was worried that they see this beautiful, gorgeous woman. They're going to want to abduct her. So he says, you know what? I got to put her in the suitcase. But when they entered Egypt, the customs, the immigration officials, they started to inspect and look into Abraham's suitcases. And they found Sarah and she was taken to the house of Pharaoh. So it's interesting to me that we know of two events that happen exactly at the crossover moment, exactly at the border between Canaan and Egypt, namely the birth of Yocheved and the abduction of Sarah, the great grandmother of Yocheved, and these two people are similar. Moreover, What happened to Sarah? Sarah was taken to Pharaoh's palace. Ostensibly, he's going to marry her. And it didn't really work out for Pharaoh. And he was given plagues by God. And he said, I'm not interested. And he gave Sarah back to Abraham with all kinds of gifts and presents and wealth and gold and silver and all that. So Sarah is almost like she's infiltrating into Pharaoh's palace and cleaning him out. Well, what happens with Yocheved? Yocheved is going to be the mother of Moses. And Moses, of course, is going to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, spoiler alert, in the book of Exodus. And he's going to be raised in Pharaoh's home. And he's going to lead the takeover, shall we say, of Egypt and the clearing out of all of Egypt's wealth. 
So I find this really interesting that there are two stories that parallel each other. And maybe we could even say that what happened to Sarah and her faith in dealing with the challenges that she had to endure, that actually creates the merit for Yocheved and after Yocheved, of course, Moses being this fifth column, being this Trojan horse to go into the very heart of the enemy, to go into Pharaoh's palace and to take it over, shall we say, from within. Another interesting idea that I want to discuss in this Parsha podcast is that Jacob, when he goes down to Egypt, the verse tells us that he takes all the wealth, all the possessions, all the property that he earned in the land of Canaan. And Rashi tells us, but all the property that he earned in Laban's home, in Padanaram, that he all gave to Esav in exchange for his burial spot in the cave of the patriarchs. And he says, well, the possessions of outside the land are not desirous to me. He made a huge pile of it. And he said, okay, it's all yours. And Asaph says, well, a burial spot. When there are lots of burial spots, it's like a commodity product. Does it really matter if you're buried here or if you are buried elsewhere? And look at this huge pile of money. He takes the deal. So Asaph exchanges his burial spot in the cave of the patriarchs for all the money that Jacob earned in the house of Laban. So, of course, there's a few questions here that I want to just throw out. Number one, why indeed does Jacob despise the wealth that he earned outside of Israel? In Parshas Vayishlach, of course, Jacob risked his life for a few jugs, and that's when he had the nocturnal encounter with the angel. But I do find it interesting, just the imagery here that's being presented by Rashi, Jacob makes a big pile, a big pile of wealth, of gold and silver. And he says, do you want this? I just, I just find that such an interesting image to think about, to visualize how Jacob is trying to entice Esau to make a deal. And he makes a huge pile of the gold and silver. Another thing I find interesting about this exchange is how this is really the second agreement, the second transaction between Jacob and his brother Asaph. The first one, when they were young lads, when they were teenagers, Jacob gives Asaph a bowl of red soup in exchange for the birthright. It seems like Asaph is driving a harder bargain in the second transaction, then the first one, all of the gold that Jacob had accumulated as of Israel, all that in exchange for the burial spot. Moreover, another observation that I had from this, from this teaching in Rashi, as also featured in the Midrash and elsewhere, when Jacob and Esav met, so Jacob spent 20 years with Laban, and he's amassed a tremendous fortune, and he's coming back to Canaan, and he discovers that Esav is coming opposite him with 400 warriors. And of course, he sends the whole gift, and they bow down seven times, and he prepares for war, splits the camp. 
when they meet, Esav marvels at all the wealth that Jacob has accumulated. And then he tells his brother, don't, uh, I don't want your gift. Don't give me your gift. You keep your gift. I have so much of my own. So Esav here is claiming to not want any of the goodies of Jacob that he had earned in the house of Laban. But really, he he did want it. And he was willing to sacrifice his burial spot in the cave of the patriarchs for it. I find this interesting that Esav is someone who professes to not want all the gold and the silver that he sees, but ultimately he's willing to sell a very precious burial spot in exchange for that. The final observation is that the Midrash tells us that this transaction, this occurred by Isaac's funeral. You know, after Jacob and his brother, they have this reunion with the 400 men. That's really the last time that Jacob and Esau see each other, at least as recorded by the Torah, with the exception of Isaac's funeral. So the Midrash tells us that by Isaac's funeral, which happened in the cave, they looked around and say, hey, there's not many burial spots left. One's going to be for me. One's going to be for you. Jacob says, I want both of them. And Esau says, okay, let's make a deal. Give me all the gold and all the silver and all the possessions that you've accumulated in the land of Padanaram from Laban. Now, when did this happen? This happened many decades after they first met. So Jacob, I, I think that's the only way to understand this Midrash. Jacob did not commingle his monies, i.e. the monies that he earned outside of the land and the monies that he earned inside the land. He didn't commingle them for decades. He kept them segregated. In his head, there's money of the land of Canaan, and that's the only thing that I want. And there's money that comes from outside the land of Canaan, and then I'm just keeping it segregated off to the side. Maybe I'll use it to buy the final burial spot in the cave. Now, again, as I mentioned in the other podcast, as an employee of Torch, I'm just contractually obligated to say that our organization is very happy with all kinds of funds, both those earned in the land of Israel and in other places and all kinds of currencies, the British pound works, the yen, the yuan, euros, also pesos, bolivars, Canadian dollars, Jordanian dinars, Bitcoin. We take it all. Finally, the last idea I wanted to share before we get to the A&Q of this week's partial podcast is a following interesting observation. So Joseph has a dream. He's going to be king. And his brothers and come bow down before him. That has to happen. Joseph's going to be a king. Abraham was promised, although back in chapter 15 of Genesis, that his descendants are going to be enslaved and oppressed in a foreign land for 400 years, and then they will leave with great wealth. And we see in these recent parshas, the Joseph saga, we see how the Almighty is orchestrating this all to happen. Joseph is sold as a slave after he's reviled by his brothers. He ends up as viceroy of Egypt. And then you have this worldwide famine that Joseph is apprised of ahead of time. And that actually precipitates his brothers and his father and the whole Jewish people, the 70 souls, 
to come down to Egypt. So here's my question. The Almighty apparently wants to fulfill the two prophecies. Prophecy for Joseph, that he's a machine. Prophecy for Abraham, that his descendants are going to be forced into exile for 400 years. And we see how it all plays out. There's this very long and dramatic story how Joseph becomes teened, and then you have the famine, which follows seven years of plenty, and that really upends the entire world, but it ultimately causes Joseph to be on the throne and the family to arrive in Egypt. But isn't there easier ways to arrive at the goal? It seems unnecessarily complicated. We have this circuitous rigmarole, this whole elaborate plan to install Joseph as king and to get Jacob and his family down to Egypt. There's a seven-year famine following a seven-year bounty. It seems like the objectives of getting Joseph on the throne, of getting Jacob and his family down to Egypt, those objectives you would imagine could have been fulfilled in a more conventional way. It seems like it's a totally unnecessarily elaborate scheme to get the whole world involved. The whole world has to suffer just to fulfill the prophecies to Abraham and to Joseph. Can't you imagine there would be an easier way to achieve these goals? One that doesn't send the entire world into chaos, into privation. Think about how many people had to go down to Joseph in Egypt to procure food. We know that the Ishmaelites, Asaph and his family, they all had to go. The whole world is suffering. Why? Well, we know because wealthy money wants it like that. But why? Apparently, it's just for Joseph to become king, his brothers to bow down before him to fulfill those prophecies, and for Jacob and co. to come down to Egypt. Why is everyone else getting involved? So I saw an amazing midrash. God promised Abraham, you should know, you should surely know, your children will be foreigners in a foreign land, they'll be enslaved, they'll be tormented, they will be oppressed for 400 years, and then when they leave, they will leave with great wealth. They might promise not only suffering, but also a redemption with great wealth. And the problem was that Egypt did not have great wealth yet, says the Midrash. And therefore, the Almighty had to bring about a worldwide famine. And Egypt is going to know about this ahead of time and prepare, thanks to Joseph's foresight. And therefore, all the people are going to need to buy food from Egypt. And they're going to have to bring all their gold and all their valuables and all their great wealth to Egypt. And as a result of that, Egypt became the masters of the entire world economy. And the reason for this is because that was also necessary because the Jewish people, when they leave Egypt, many hundreds of years later, Egypt has all the gold and the Jewish people can clear them all out. What a fascinating midrash. The seven-year bounty followed by the famine had to happen because that was the Almighty's way, so to speak, of taking all the world's wealth and coalescing it all in Egypt to facilitate that when the Exodus happens many years, hence the Jewish people have access to all the world's wealth so they can leave with great wealth.
Now, first of all, I'm saying this raises, again, some more interesting questions. You know, why did all the other nations have to suffer to lose all their wealth to go to Egypt for a couple hundred years before the Jewish people can leave with all that wealth? But it really hit me. Jacob, he forfeits all the money that he earns outside of the land of Israel. He forfeits all of that for Asaph's portion in the cave. And what happens to that money? So you would imagine, based upon the description we have in this week's Parsha about all the money of the world coming to Egypt. And we know Asaph did come to Egypt as well. So you would imagine that that money actually ended up in Egypt. And therefore, just working this out, Jacob eventually recouped all his money because all the money that he took from Laban and he gave to Esau, Esau gave to Egypt. And then 200 years later, by the Exodus, the Jewish people cleaned out Egypt and that money was once again in Jewish hands, in Jacob, i.e. Israel's hands, which I thought was really interesting, like just following the breadcrumbs, if you will, of what happened to this money, according to this Midrash, it eventually ended up back in Jacob's hands. And once again, he got his cake and ate it too. He kept the money eventually, and he ended up with the burial spot as well. And that's kind of the bargain. Jacob, his whole storyline is, you are supposed to have your portion, and Asaph's supposed to have Asaph's portion, and ultimately, you're always going to end up with both of them. You're going to get both the blessings, you're going to get both spots in the cave, you're going to end up with the money of the land of Canaan and the money outside the land of Canaan. That is how beautiful it is to be part of the Jacob family. We have the promises of the Tala Shemaim Shmani Aretz, the dew of the heaven and the fat of the land. We also have what Esav was destined to get. And we also, of course, have the tense of Jacob that is our spiritual calling. Let's get to this week's A and Q. Here's the question of the week. Joseph, after his brothers come to Egypt, he has to introduce them to Pharaoh. And he is very wary of Pharaoh recognizing their tremendous talent. And we see Pharaoh as someone who's willing to give important jobs to people that have the ability. He sees Joseph. Joseph is interpreting the dreams. He has wisdom. He has insight. And right away, Pharaoh gives him a very important job. Well, what would happen if Pharaoh gets to meet Joseph's brothers and they too are tremendously talented and gifted? Well, he's going to appoint them as important ministers, heads of provinces, heads of the military. And Joseph is very concerned about that. So he has all kinds of precautions to avoid that. So first he tells his brothers, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to tell Pharaoh that my family's here. And I'm going to tell him that you're shepherds. You're simple shepherds. You're not that talented. You don't know how to work the numbers. You're not someone who could be valuable to Pharaoh. And then Joseph adds, but that's not enough. When you meet him, you also tell him that you're shepherds. And even those two precautions, not enough. 
when Joseph takes a sample of his brothers, he takes echa from the edge of his brothers. Rashi tells us he takes only the five weaker brothers. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi. By the way, Shimon and Levi were the weaker ones, still strong enough to decimate the entire city. Yisachar, who was always into Torah study, and that you'd imagine that that weakened him, and the youngest one, Benjamin. The other ones were big and strong and strapping and so impressive, if Pharaoh even saw them, even though he has been reliably told that they are shepherds, he would still appoint them over important jobs. Joseph is really worried about what Pharaoh is going to do to his brothers. And he gets all these precautions, all these safety measures to make sure that they are not taken by Pharaoh for a job that may be harmful for them. And here's the question. Why is it so bad to have a little clout, to have a little power? Why is Joseph so worried that his brother's going to get important posts, important positions? Joseph, after all, he flourished as viceroy of Egypt. Doesn't it make sense for the Jewish people to get as much power as we can? Joseph's the viceroy. Maybe divide up the country. Every brother becomes a uh, a governor of some province, they get control of the military, we run the economy, secretary of the treasury, secretary of war, of the interior. What's wrong with that? Why is Joseph so concerned that his brothers will have power? That's the question. If you have an answer, of course, you can email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Let's get to last week's A&Q. And the question was, chapter 42, verse 1, when Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt, he says, I hear that there's food in Egypt. We have to go get food. We shouldn't show off. Rashi tells us that Jacob had plenty of food. And therefore, he's worried what's going to be the children of Ishmael and the children of Esau, they're going to see us, they're going to be jealous of us. We shouldn't boast, we shouldn't flaunt our extra grain. And therefore, we too should go with everyone else down to Egypt. And the question that we asked is, wait a minute, was Jacob a prepper? Was he a survivalist? Did he have 30 years of canned goods in his garage? Why did Jacob have grain when no one else did. Why did he only send his children, his sons, to go to Egypt for grain just because he didn't want to show off? How is it possible that Jacob had grain when no one else did? Now, to compound the problem, the Talmud gives us the mark of a complete righteous person, a completely faithful person. The Talmud, the book of Sota, tells us what is the definition of a person who has full emunah, full faith? The definition of that kind of person is someone who has food for today, paspasalo, you have bread in your basket for today, but you have no food for tomorrow. And someone who has real faith, you rely on God, God's going to watch over you. You have real faith. And you have food for today, but not for tomorrow. You're calm. You don't worry. You don't say, what am I going to eat tomorrow? You know that they want to take care of you. So, how does Jacob, one of the great heroes of our history, how does he stockpile so much food? Why is he not reliant on God? And question number two is that the 
Sources tell us that he was specifically worried about Esav and Ishmael, not the Canaanites. And you would imagine, you know, if Jacob has plenty of grain, why is he worried only about Esav and Ishmael? Why is he worried only about them? What about the rest of the Canaanites, the rest of his neighbors? Wouldn't he have cause for concern that they're going to be envious of Jacob and his family, perhaps, that they have plenty of grain and the Canaanites must go and forage and procure some in Egypt? Those are the two questions of last week. Now, I did see the Ramban. The Ramban asked the question that why specifically is Jacob concerned of the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Esau? And he points out that they actually at the time did not live in the land of Canaan. So they would not be neighbors, so to speak, of Jacob. And how would they even know, asks the Ramban, how would they know that Jacob had plenty of food? And he answers, well, they were traveled to Egypt via Canaan and therefore they would encounter Jacob, and that's why they would be envious. Now, I want to be honest with the crowd here, with the faithful Parsha podcast audience. When I asked this question last week, I really didn't have an answer, and I was hoping I'd be bailed out by some kind listener who would explain it to me. Does, did it make any sense to me? Why does Jacob have so much food when no one else does? And I did get some good answers, as I always did. But over the course of the week, it, it hit me. And it hit me with such a way, like, I, I felt like the Almighty, like, took a parachute of knowledge that's so really obvious in retrospect and just deposited it in my brain. And this is, I think, the legitimate answer. And you tell me if you agree. If not, you send me a strongly worded email to my email address, rabbiologist.com, and say, Rabbi, you missed it. But here's the answer. Jacob tells his sons, go down to Egypt to go get food. Don't show off. Don't show off that we have food. Everyone else is going. We go as well. I think that Jacob did not stockpile food. He did not have more food or more grain than any one of his neighbors. Not the Canaanites, not the Ishmaelites, not Asaph's people. No, a tzaddik stockpiles food? No, if you're a true tzaddik, if you have full emuna, full faith in God, and you have food for today, you don't worry about tomorrow. And therefore, I would imagine that Jacob did not stockpile any food, and if anything, maybe he even had less than everyone else because everyone else did stockpile. Or maybe he had the same exact amount, but he definitely didn't have any more. But what happens? It's a bad yield. It's a year that there's a famine. There isn't sufficient rain. And the bounty that's being produced is very meager. And maybe you have some leftover grain from last year. But the stockpile is dwindling. And everyone is frantic. Everyone's freaking out. We're all going to die. We're going to starve. We're doomed. And that's quite natural. If you see your stock of food dwindling, and you know there's no more food in the land, well, even before you run out of food, you start to plan what's going to be when, you know, in a couple of weeks, shall we say, we have a couple of weeks more food and that's it, and then we're all going to die. And Jacob was calm. And Jacob, like a true tzaddik that he was, a truly righteous person that he was, a man of complete total faith, he is totally unmoved. If you have food for today, why would you even worry about tomorrow? You have the Almighty, he'll take care of you. 
So everyone else is making this beeline, this frantic beeline to Egypt. There's food in Egypt. Let's quickly hustle over there before our food here is finished. And Jacob is totally at peace, at ease, because he knows that you can rely on God. Why am I worried? If I have food for today, that's all I need to worry about. Tomorrow, what do you mean? I have the Almighty. He's my billionaire dad. He'll take good care of me. So Jacob is calm, not because he has more grain, but because he has more faith. And you can imagine Ishmael and Esau, they didn't wait to the last minute to replenish their food. The second that they sensed that a shortage was pending, they immediately scrambled for food. So what does Jacob tell his sons? We have to go out into Egypt. We have plenty of food because if you have food for today, you have plenty of food as a true believer. You have plenty of food. But why must we go with everyone else down to Egypt? Because we don't want to show off specifically to Esau and to Ishmael. This is not showing off the food that you have. You know, if the Canaanites were to look at Jacob's food supply, it would probably match theirs. And the fact that he's calm and the fact that he's not freaking out and the fact that he's not hustling over to Egypt, that's just because he's a fool. He's crazy. So they're not jealous of him at all. But what's going to be when Asa and Ishmael come by and they see how everyone's running, they're running themselves to Egypt because there is a famine. We have maybe a week, two weeks left of food and everyone will die. And Jacob's calm, business as usual, relying on God. A man of full faith, you have food today, you're good to go. The Canaanites, they look at him and they see a total fool. Doesn't he realize that he's going to die in a week or two? But what happens when Esau sees him? What happens when Ishmael sees Jacob? These people, they come from the family of Abraham. They have some sort of connection to faith. And they're going to see Jacob at total ease, total calm, with no food or maybe a week's worth of food left. And they are going to feel a pain of pain due to the fact that Jacob has that Abrahamic level of faith of being totally calm and at ease because you have total reliance on God. To the Canaanites, it's just total foolishness. You don't need to conceal that from them. But to the family of Abraham that has some semblance of a connection to true faith, it's showing off. And Jacob tells his sons, we have to go into Egypt because we cannot show off. Not to show off the grain that we have. We cannot show off spiritually. We cannot flaunt our righteousness. We cannot cause spiritual envy to our brethren, specifically the people that maybe have some connection to this idea, namely the sons of Asaph and the sons of Ishmael. I think it's a very valuable lesson here. When you have something good, you should enjoy it. But you shouldn't flaunt it because they make other people envious, cause other people pain. That's not what you want. And that applies, we're told here by Jacob, not only with the physical bounty that you have, but also the spiritual bounty. When someone is righteous, they pray, they do kindness, they do charity, whatever it is, they do something good. And maybe there is an urge to say, huh, I'm better than you. Look at me. I'm so righteous. I've done so many mitzvahs. I've given so much charity. I've done so much kindness. We have that urge 
to show off spiritually as well. And Jacob tells his children, we have faith. We see our diminishing cupboard. We see our diminishing stockpile of food and we're calm because we know we rely on God 100%. But we cannot lord that over our cousins, the Ishmaelites and the children of Esau. We cannot spiritually flaunt our accomplishments, our faith. We cannot spiritually show off and therefore it's appropriate for us to conceal our righteousness and to head down to Egypt alongside everyone else. One of the true marks of real piety, of real righteousness, is when someone obscures their own greatness. The verse tells us in the book of Micah that one of the three, so to speak, things that the Almighty wants from us, asos mishpat, to do judgment, ahavas chesed, to love kindness, and to walk modestly, humbly with God. If everything that you do, you want to have billboards proclaiming your righteousness, everyone should know, let me publicize this as best as I could, then there's one, at least one third of what the Almighty wants from us that we are not fulfilling. Let's take the lesson from Jacob, not to show off, not with our physical accomplishments and prowess, not with our material successes, and certainly not as well with our spiritual triumphs. I thank you for listening. I am so glad that I didn't capitulate to the temptation to withhold from doing a Parch podcast this week. It was enjoyable, as it always is. And I thank you for listening and for being such a wonderful friend. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to chatting. Please God with y'all next week. Have an amazing Shabbos and all the best.